Welcome to Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr. Vicky Conway and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. What would have been a good idea would have been a, a letter maybe from you with your name, your number and just a hand reaching out saying look at we're sorry that this has happened. We know you're going to have a lot of questions. When you're ready, we're here. And that would have meant an awful lot to us, but that didn't happen. And he kind of sat back and said, oh, well, I never thought of that. This week, we're hearing from Joanna. Joanna got in touch with us some weeks ago after a family member pointed her towards the podcast. Some 18 months ago, Joanna's 20-year-old son, Niall, a student in Maynooth University, took his own life just hours after being released from Garda custody. Joanna has chosen to speak about her experience in the hope that no other family has to go through what they are going through. It's obviously very difficult for Joanna to speak about this, and it's a difficult episode to listen to. But it's important that we listen and hear and think about whether change is necessary. Niall, Niall was, um, he was wonderful. Um, I mean, I'm so grateful and so, I'm so thankful. I thank God that, that I can actually 100% say that, that he was, he was a wonderful person. He was, he was such a good boy. He never, he never caused us a minute's bother in his, in his life. He never gave us any reason to be concerned. And I called beat at the end, he <laughs> broke our hearts. But I don't believe that was ever intentional, you know, his baby. He certainly would never set out to hurt anybody. He was he was kind, he was caring. I mean his his granddad who he adored, God rest him, he lost him in twenty eighteen and you know, before he died when he was sick and he He'd suffer a little bit of dementia. He he was just so patient with him and he'd help his nanny, his nanny up the lane, as we all so affectionately called her. He called her. But he would do anything for her and he, you know, he'd, he was even going into mass. He'd go with them and he'd sit with them just to be there and to make sure that Granda was okay and, you know, and help and look, look after him. So he was just, he had a really caring nature and he loved animals and... He um, he played football. Football was his huge love. I'd say like from he was old enough to even hold a ball. That was it. He was hooked. He used to um, go out into the garden on his own, and he could play an entire match, being both teams. He would be, yeah, he would be Kerry versus Dublin. He would know all the players. He would come in to me and he would give me, uh, you know, running commentary on what was after happening, who was after scoring, who was after being sent off, why they were being sent off. And um, I mean, the sweat would be just bubbling out of him and he had a notebook and he was running his own tournaments. I mean, he'd have his own semi-finals, all Ireland finals. He was just, he was just obsessed with football. 
And then when he was old enough to to join his local club, St Mary's, who he absolutely adored. I mean, nothing made him happier than putting on his club jersey and getting on out onto the pitch with his teammates. Um, he just loved his football club and he, that's when he was, I'd say, at his absolute happiest when he walked out onto a pitch. I mean, he was in college in Maynooth. He, he was in third year there. He was so close to, to, to actually finishing. He played football, of course, with Maynooth as well, and he, he loved it there. He was so happy and he made so many wonderful friends. And um, Yeah, you know, look at Niall was a young, 20-year-old just trying to find his way in the world. He um, he would just take over the running of, of the farm whenever John needed it. So in 2016, when we went on holidays, he, he took full responsibility for the farm. And he did that in 2017 and 2018. So we could just go off on holidays and he would, he'd take over. He, he was very, very, very responsible and he liked being busy and he liked being helpful and, you know, like he always had summer jobs as well. So in addition to that, he was probably working somewhere during the day too. And he'd come home then and he'd milk and, you know, but when you're young, you know, I suppose it's easy to do those things. You don't need that much sleep. Um, while he was in college, he worked in the, the Kilmer Hotel in Cavan. He was a member of the bar staff there and he loved that as well. Niall was determined and independent. You know, so he had a busy life, like Monday to Friday in Maynooth and then Friday and Saturday evenings he'd work. And then that could be from, he could start a shift at seven o'clock, maybe not finish, not be home here till four or five o'clock in the morning because, you know, you had to clean up and tidy up. So, and, you know, like even when he was in third year, we thought, is this too much? Is it, you know, you don't have to do this or push yourself like that. But he wanted to do it. He enjoyed it. He, he liked to be independent and he liked to be responsible for himself, I suppose. Like even at the last, when he went into third year, he had worked all summer. He'd worked a job. Monday to Friday during the day and every weekend he was in the Kilmer and he you know he had a few bit few pounds saved and he was determined he was paying his rent for the first few months you know he didn't want us doing that we were like you don't have to and I remember him coming about Halloween and saying I, I, I can't keep paying I, I don't have much more money left and we were like we never expected you to do that you know you wanted to do that yourself in March of 2019 this young man died so I suppose just to explain, I mean, the 18th of March, obviously is the day after Paddy's Day. <laughs> Paddy's Day, this was the Bank Holiday Monday. And it was a Monday that year. The um, Sunday was St. Patrick's Day. And I had come home from college on the Friday. He had worked Friday evening at the hotel. He worked again on Saturday evening. Saturday night he came home at, I, I'm not sure, four or five o'clock in the morning. He got up early on Sunday morning, which was St. Patrick's Day, and he played a match with his club. And he came home from that and he decided he was going out. His friend's 21st was on that night. and But he wanted to go out early because the club finals was on that day. And I mean, that's a big deal. You know, with all them, there was so many of his friends meeting together. And, we were, I was a little bit hesitant about him going out because we knew he hadn't had that much sleep and we'd, you know, sort of said, well, his dad actually said, go, go up to bed and lie down for a while. We'll, we'll bring you out later on. And, but he was he was adamant, no, I want to go out and meet the lads now. But, so 
so he did and I brought him into town I was going to to see the parade with our youngest son and um, I brought him to where he wanted to go and you know I was just being the usual mammy as he got out of the car saying you know watch yourself keep in touch send us a message let us know what's happening you know because so many times he wouldn't <laughs> but uh, and that particular evening he did he did text me at about 10 o'clock and myself and John had actually gone out ourselves for a few drinks being the night that was in it and he let me know that he was at his friend's house at that stage and um, that they were heading into Cavan to continue the celebrations and that he planned on coming home and if he wasn't home he would be at his friend's house. So the following morning when he didn't arrive or when I realised he hadn't come home I didn't pass too much remarks I just presumed he was at his friend's house. But around nine o'clock he phoned me to tell me that um, he was looking for a lift from Cavan <laughs> that he had missed the bus and that he stayed with a friend. And that wasn't unusual either because he had loads of friends because of working there. I didn't really think much of that, but of course I was annoyed that he missed the bus and, and was still in Cavan. A friend of Niles gave him a lift home to the farm just outside of Grenard in Longford. He arrived home here at about 12 o'clock and he came in and we chatted for a while. And of course I, you know, I was annoyed that he hadn't come home and I was sort of saying you can't be at that now, just you know, landing or staying at wherever wherever you feel like it. But, you know, it was just a very normal conversation. We chatted about his night. I asked about the 21st and, you know, weirdly, in my mind, I was thinking, we're definitely going to do something for your 21st. That's what was going through my head because for his 18th, he wouldn't allow us to do anything. And I said, even in my head, I said, I can't say this. I'm not even going to say this out loud because if I do say it, he's going to shoot me down and say, no, 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 and that'd be it. It wouldn't be happy to someone say that, but I said, definitely, 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 you know, we're doing something. He chatted a bit about that. Um, he asked me about my night out and asked who, was that, who had been there. And a lot of his aunts and uncles were there and we were just chatting about that. And it was just nothing, it was nothing strange. He, he was just pottering around. He was on his phone a good bit, which is, was very normal because of course he got right back into the house and he had Wi-Fi and he was able to catch up with whatever he needed to catch up with. His two younger brothers were here and they were in and out as well. And then suddenly he, he just he just got up and he said, I'm, I'm, I'll be back in a minute, ma'am. And he went out the door and I went after him because I thought that, why, why is he leaving so soon? And I, in my head, I, I really did think he was going to take the car or the Jeep because I knew he, 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 he got separated from his friends at some stage during the night and he, you know, they, they were trying to catch up and one of his friends doesn't live too far from here. And that was in my house. I said, he, he's going to take, he's going to go there. And um, I went out and I said, Niall, where are you going? And he said, no, ma'am, ma'am, I'm telling you, I'll be back in a minute. And he jumped the wall. And I was sort of relieved to know he wasn't taking the car, that, that he wasn't going to do that. And I thought, oh, look, at he's gone out now. He's going on his phone and he's going ringing them. Look, obviously something happened that he doesn't want me to hear about. So he went and I just, like my, his, his grandparents live at the top of, of our lane. Um, our three boys have made that journey up and down that lane a million times. It's just, there's nothing unusual in it. Also, I heard a car and our other son told me that that was their uncle, his uncle, John, my husband's brother. And I just thought, oh, they're, they're up there now and they're nattering and they're talking. And, you know, I was thinking about him all the time, wondering why. But I just thought, oh, they're just up there chatting. When Niall hadn't returned home in an hour, 
Joanna tried his mobile, but there was no answer. She tried his grandmother's, who said she hadn't seen him. Joanna went up the fields and found him, on her own. She quickly got her husband, trying to ensure that no one else saw, and John rang the guards. Within minutes, I mean, the guardie arrived, our local guards. There was an ambulance, there was an air helicopter. So many people were there to try and, to try and help receive him when I knew. It was just it was too late. But they were all wonderful, I have to say. They, they, they were all wonderful in a horrific situation, in a traumatic situation. They were all, they were brilliant. One paramedic encouraged Joanna to sit with Niall, which was essential for her. So I eventually checked his pockets. I, I, I don't even know why I suppose I was looking for evidence and clues of what the hell happened here. And I found what I thought was a note and I took it from his pocket. And we realised it was, a, I now realise it to be a charge sheet. And I didn't know what that was, you know. I, so I called over one of the, our local guards who, who was beside me and I said, will you please explain this to me? What is this document in my hand? And he said, you get that if, you, if you've been arrested or you realize that something must have happened last night. And I said, oh my God, I said, will you please, will you please do everything you can to find out what happened? And then I'm like, how, how do, how do I not know this? How could something have happened last night to our son and we don't know? How come I don't know? And I kept saying this, I kept saying this. I said, how come I don't know? How come I don't know? How come we weren't told? And he said, well, he, what age is he? And I told him, and he said, well, he's over 18. So, um, you, you, you don't necessarily get told. And I was just, this was complete and utter um, revelation to me. When someone is detained and they are under the age of 18, a parent or guardian must be informed. But the day you turn 18, this requirement ends. So I handed that over to the, um, to the Garda and um, he took it from there. He, um, he found out whatever he could um, and he got back to us and he told us that uh, Niall had been arrested he on a drunken disorderly charge he um, and I suppose all oh, this is just so hard to take in as well because Niall was so he was so quiet and he just never uh, it's hard like he never had caused any problems or anybody he'd never been in trouble before and I was like I'm hearing this and thinking is this is this really Niall I have to mix him up with somebody else you know this couldn't possibly be Niall but um, he, you know, had been, so when he would look at it, he just sort of said, and we sort of said, look at it. And he, yeah, he said, look at you, you'll be able to find out all the information you need all in good time. You know, you can go and ask all the questions and, you know, you have a right to know everything and you will, you, you'd find it all out. So we sort of said, right, we just have to park that. It's just too hard to try and deal with all of that. Now we just have to concentrate and try and get through and deal with what we're actually dealing with. But on the following, the Wednesday, which would have been the day of, of the main wake, but early that morning, another guard came to the house and 
he actually he spoke to John to me, but he said that there was another separate incident. Something had happened in Sligo two weeks previous. <laughs> that um, um, it was during rag week and we knew we knew he had been there at some point during that week so we we're like okay right but again we just sort of said look we have to just park that as well we, it was just too much it was just so overwhelming to, to be hearing all of this and to, to sort of reconcile it to, to the child that you knew but anyway as a family they tried to deal with the grief and loss and i suppose very like, naively because there was instance you know, both in Cavan and Sligo, I thought there would be like a liaison officer or somebody would come to us at some point and say, look, it, um, I'm here to help you through this. And, you know, this is what's, you know, we can arrange a meeting if that's what you want. Or somebody even to come to us to talk about this inquest because that was kind of just thrown at us. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking, what do you mean? An inquest? What? You know, I... I had no idea. Why would you have it? I just... Uh. Garda family liaison officers are, however, only available for victims of murder, road traffic collisions or kidnappings. So there's no requirement for one to be appointed in this case. It'd be a good idea if somebody like that did exist. It would help to reach out to us because we were completely lost. I mean, this was just not a world that we were used to navigating. A really key thing for Joanna and John was meeting the guards who had seen Niall on the night he was arrested. So eventually, um, I think about six weeks later, um, John decided, look, you know, I'm just going to ring Cavan Carter Station and ask for a, a meeting. So he did. And we, we asked to meet with the guards involved. We, we wanted specifically to meet those who had spoken tonight because we wanted to just to figure out where he was or what was going on, you know, in his head. And we just wanted to hear sort of maybe the, the personal story. Or... So that's what we thought we'd agreed to or what we thought was going to happen. So we went to, to Cavan, but we didn't on that occasion get to meet with any of the guards involved. We met with, um, it was two inspectors, I think, one male, one female. And they brought us through, like, you know, the custody record and all the standard stuff. But all the questions we had, and we had so many questions, they couldn't answer any of them because they weren't there. They, they, they had no idea. But they were able to tell us that um, Niall had come out of a nightclub, you know, with some of his friends, and they would do a lot of messing on the street. And somewhere along the line, Niall apparently kicked a car which which was just bizarre. I mean, I, I couldn't understand that aggression in Niall as well because he just wasn't an aggressive person. And I know drink can do funny things to, you know, to people and maybe a lot of it was that, but I mean, he was just, he just wasn't aggressive. So the person who, who owned the car got out and didn't want to press charges. But I think Niall tried to resist arrest or whatever. And he tried to get away from them and they caught up with him. They decided to arrest him anyway. So he was brought off and he was brought to the guard station. And um, that's it. That, that's really all they could tell us then because, you know, we had all the questions on what was said. What was Niall saying? Was he, what, what sort of form was he in? You know, did he, was he in a, do you feel he was in a really bad place? You know, all these, they couldn't answer any of that. So we... 
we actually asked as well, yeah, could you, you know, please bring us to the cell that he was detained in? I just wanted to get a feel for what it, what it was like for somebody so young to be thrown into a cell and just left there with all your thoughts. That same inspector told us so many times how minor one I had done was. You know, that annoyed me so much as well because I said, you know, who did, did, did you explain that? Did anybody explain that to him? And he couldn't answer me because he wasn't there on the night. So anyway, we left there saying we want to, a meeting. We really need to speak to those involved. And um, they agreed. And I said, could we just not set it up now while we're here? And they couldn't. And, uh, you know, I mean, and I understand that when you're talking to a few people and having to try and, you know, get everybody together. That's, it's understandable. But we sort of left there thinking, you know, that, you know, we'd be hearing from them and they'd be more proactive in this. But it wasn't really like that. There was a lot of us having to lift the phone again, sending another message, you know, saying, look, at now I can't remember exactly how many messages, like, John would be able to, it was, it was him that was more in contact with them. But there was quite a few before we eventually got to meet with um, the guards involved. And I think that was sometime maybe at the end of or May, sometime in May. And I think we'd met with the, the inspectors at the end of April. I think it was in the middle of May and we met with some of the guardy involved. When the, the inspectors brought us through, like the, you know, the, the, the custody record and all that, we knew that there was two guards involved in his arrest. One very young lad who was just out of college, out of Templemore. He wouldn't have been much older than Nile. And then another guard who I don't think was much older than that again. And then we had two, two sergeants, one sergeant that, that, I don't know, was there when he was brought in. And another sergeant that was there when he left. We wanted to speak with the four of them. But we were told beforehand that one of the guards, the older of the two guards that had arrested him, were, was uh, already transferred to another station and he couldn't be there on the day in question because he had a dentist appointment. So when we got to the station on the day that we thought we were getting to meet the guards, we met for the very first time the superintendent and the inspector who we'd met the first, the first time around, the male inspector. The superintendent offered his condolences and sympathies and all that on the day and we were, um, I, was, I was annoyed, I was extremely annoyed with him because I felt he had plenty of opportunity to reach out to us considering the circumstances, you know, he could have, I felt, done more. Um, he told me that he had organised a meeting at the time to decide whether or not it would be a good idea to send somebody to our house, to our home or to the, to the funeral. And um, they decided in that meeting that that wouldn't be a good idea. I agreed that that would not have been a good idea. But I said, what would have been a good idea? Would have been a, a letter maybe from you with your name, your number and just a hand reaching out saying, look at... We're sorry that this has happened. We know you're going to have a lot of questions. Um, when you're ready, I'm here. We're here. You know, we'll answer all your questions. And that would have meant an awful lot to us, but that didn't happen. And he kind of sat back and said, oh, well, I never thought of that. And I, I was so shocked. I said, I can't believe somebody in your position, in your ranking within the, the guard would need to be told that, you know. 
He said that, oh, I knew you'd be here. I knew you would come at some stage, he said. And I told all my men at the time to make sure, and ladies, his guards, to have all your notes in order and to make sure um, everything was in place because I knew at some point you would arrive here. And I said, like I said, I know that I'm, I'm absolutely certain that you know, you're going to be certain or you're going to feel that all policies were followed and all T's were crossed and dotted, I's were dotted, especially when you knew we were going to be coming. But I said, that doesn't mean that it's all okay. It doesn't mean that what you are following is all all right. The advice received at this meeting was not at all of the kind that you might expect. They told us that they felt we had a really good story to tell and that we just needed to get on to, you know, our local TDs. That's what, that's what they told us. And I'm like, just, oh God, it was just bizarre. But um, we had this meeting, I suppose, first when we went in with the, with the superintendent and inspector and it was exhausting. It was emotionally, you know, we were emotional wrecks anyway. But we still hadn't met with the other, the guards. And that's what we were there for. And I was determined not to leave until we got to see, to see them. Even though I knew at this point, I'm just, I just feel so tired. But um, eventually that did happen. But in that room, we were with the superintendent, the spec inspector, the Garda welfare officer, the young guard who arrested Niall, the sergeant who was present when Niall was leaving the, the station, and a young female guard who was taking minutes. So we were there with all six of these guards, myself and my husband, unexpected to just be able to answer questions. It was so intimidating. And I mean, in my exhausted and emotional state, I knew it was intimidating and I knew it was wrong, but I couldn't say, I just thought I haven't the energy to say anything. I said, I cannot believe that they're all sitting around here thinking that this is okay. It's so not okay. When the two guards involved sat down, the superintendent addressed them and said, if at any point, point during this interview, you feel uncomfortable, you can walk out. And I mean, that just struck such a chord with me. I was like, number one, I would hate to think I would make anybody feel uncomfortable. I said, that's not what we're about. I said, we don't want to be here. We hate that this is our life now and this is the situation that we're in. And then secondly, it's like, I am extremely uncomfortable. My life has become very uncomfortable. I said, I wish I was afforded the same opportunity that I could just sort of walk away and that everything would be okay. We asked, we got to ask the, the, um, the guards questions, but it, you know, I have to say, you know, I really felt their answers were pre-rehearsed. I think they knew going into it what we were going to ask because we had asked all the questions originally to the, the inspector. You know, and a big thing with me was like, how, how was Niall when he came in? What way was he when he, when he arrived at the station? And they told us they were sitting chatting to him, that he was talking about football. They talked to him about Manuth. And they told us that he was an absolute gentleman. And I just, I think they thought, yeah, this is, this is what she wants to hear. No, her son was a gentleman. But I looked at the superintendent and I said, and you, still think your policies are okay. You think it was okay to lock up somebody that was having a conversation with your guards and was a gentleman that that was all right. 
so he sort of said, like, I can't get into the mindset of my girl on a, on a night. They did nothing wrong. They followed the law. They did, you know. Um, they said that, that they offered the phone call to Niall, this stupid phone call that I always thought you, it was compulsory. Why can't that phone call be compulsory? Why can't you, it should be compulsory? You should have to phone somebody because I think being in trouble and getting ending up in a car station is very serious. And um, you need help. You need somebody to support you. And uh, anyway, they said that they, they offered the phone call and Niall refused it. And he said, you have to promise me, you please have to promise me that nobody is ever going to find out about this. On the next morning, at around nine o'clock when Niall was released, he asked the sergeant, do I really have to go to court for this? And the sergeant said, yeah, you do. And he just walked out the door. And that was it. He could have gone left, he could have gone right, he could have... They didn't care as and it was shortly after that time that Pernile that he phoned me. When you think like I had no idea where he was. And I was getting annoyed with him because he'd stayed with a friend and I was thinking, oh God, if he how could he, he was probably thinking, how can I tell her where I really was? When she thought I was with a friend and she's like, oh, she's totally overreacted. There's a real question here that Joanna raises, that Gardaí may have followed their policies, but are their policies good enough? I spoke to Darren Ainsborough of the Irish Council of Civil Liberties about what standards should be applied when someone is detained. From our perspective, from a rights perspective, um, what the Gardaí should be doing in these kind of situations where you have someone brought in um, into their custody is is that their their primary interest should be in ensuring their care and their welfare. And that that is actually um, something that's based on human rights law. There are very clear standards in human rights law about treatment of people who are in detention. Um, And it includes, you know, they kind of stem from two main rights, the, the right to life and the right not to be subjected to torture or ill treatment. And a lot of um, thinking and analysis and court judgments have gone into interpreting what those rights mean in that context. And the clear you know, principle that has emerged is that there is a very strong positive duty of care on uh, the Gardaí to ensure that people are looked after when they're in detention and under their care. And that has been translated in, 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 into different um, specific um, issues. So, for example, you know, the Gardaí have to ensure that any person who comes into their custody is given very clear information about their rights, about why they're there, about what might happen after, um, you know, afterwards, whether they'll be released, what might happen with a charge, that kind of thing. That that's that's a right to information, and actually, that right has been consistently, you know underlined as one of the most important rights um, in in that context. So that's the first thing. They need to be told exactly, you know, why they're there, what's going to happen and and what supports are available to them. And one of those supports um, is about contacting people outside of the um, of the guard station. They're entitled to a phone call. They're entitled to have a visit um, if they if they so wish. Um, And of course, they're entitled to legal advice. A second very important right is the right to medical uh, assessment and 
and to treatment. So there is a positive obligation on Gardaí to ensure that where um, somebody in their custody is uh, it's, it's showing any signs of, of any of any kind of medical issues that they must consult um, a doctor or bring a doctor in to examine them. Um, and if it's serious, they, they have to bring people, they, they must bring someone to, to hospital. And if that happens, they also must inform a family member or someone close of them, uh, someone close to them. There also is a, a requirement that there is a, a member in charge designated to actually check in on the person every half an hour. And they must, they must keep very clear records, custody records, um, where they, they uh, take detailed notes about the, the, the situation the person might be in or any concern they might have. Um, and one of ICCL's concerns is that at the moment, there's actually no independent inspection body based in Ireland that can go into police detention to ensure that those um, rights are, are being upheld, to ensure that Gardaí are fulfilling their obligations um, and to ensure that, that people are, are being treated with, with the respect and the care that they are entitled to. When we, when we came out of that meeting, um, yeah, myself and my husband just looked at each other and said, we need help. We need a solicitor and, and, and we just thought this is ridiculous. We shouldn't need a solicitor, but we absolutely felt we needed, we needed support. We needed help to get through this. We, we, we weren't going to be able to do this on our own. And he was as, as hurt and as annoyed as I with how I felt we'd been treated. Um, we just felt there was absolutely no compassion in our treatment at all. And, you know, it made us question more how our own son, how Niall had been treated as well, because we thought, you know, if we can be treated like that, we've, we've done nothing wrong. We just came for answers. How was Niall with all of this? How was he treated in all of this? How was he spoken to? How, you know, how was his experience? They were also simultaneously trying to figure out what had happened in Sligo two weeks previously. There was also one suggestion that Niall was arrested in Sligo for taking drugs, which didn't sound like their son, and was something which his friends adamantly denied. This drip feed of information led to a horrible situation where they, as parents, began to doubt their knowledge of their son. Began to doubt their son. The guardian Cavan did not offer to help find out what happened for them, but instead fueled this question. The guards in Cavan on that day had alluded to that. They had mentioned, they kept going back to the Sligo. Have you found out what's happening in Sligo? What, what happened that day, night in Sligo? And they started talking about the drugs and starting, oh, it's, you know, it's rampant. It's rampant in, you know, in, they mentioned Sligo. They said, they, they said it was rampant among GA clubs. Because we, I suppose, had said Niall was, he was such a sports enthusiast. He was so into his fitness. And, um, you know, they were saying, but, but it's happening in, in, in um, football clubs anyway. And we were completely shocked by this. And we thought, well, if, if you know that, what, what are you doing about it? And they were like, oh, well, we're open to going into clubs and giving talks. But I said, we're involved in our club and we this is the first we've heard of it. Why, you know, how are we going to invite you in when we don't know? Is, this, is it not up to you to be kind of a bit more proactive in that? And but, but in all of this, I know it's going off, going sidetracking slightly. There was, it was like they were planting a seed. We were starting to think differently about our own son. We, we thought he was taken. So we said, like, oh my God, maybe, maybe he was. It was nearly like, that's what you need to be concentrating on. No, you need to be thinking about all of that. 
John found the Sligo charge sheet among Niall's belongings and managed to contact the Garda involved. And John, who milks, we have a dairy farm, he'd asked me, so would you please phone me before five o'clock because I, I'd be gone at that stage and it was after five and John gave me the phone and asked me to talk to him if he phoned back. So I did and on that particular day, I, I never forget the phone call because I was in such a state... <sighs> I was most days, but it was particularly worse then because I had developed an ulcer and I had acid reflux that had interfered with my voice box and I couldn't speak properly. I was, everything was in a whisper, like a, I just couldn't project my voice very well. So I was really struggling on the phone with this guard. And so you can imagine, he said, we can't we can't give you any information or if you want any information around what happened to your son here, you have, it has to be in writing to our superintendent. Think about that as a request of a grieving family. I said, do you honestly think we're in any position to start writing letters to your superintendent? But that was that. And, you know, naively again, I thought, you know what? The superintendent will ring us. You know, they'll hear that we're interested. Like, all we want to know is the truth around what happened. We'll hear from them. In a very random occurrence, Minister Stephen Donnelly happened to attend Niles Month Mind Mass. It was sheer coincidence that his wife's family were from there and the Mass was on Easter Sunday. A few days later, they decided to phone him. He has been hugely supportive since then. At this stage, they'd had an initial meeting in Cavangarda Station but not managed to speak to the guardie who had seen Nile. Mr Donnelly passed a detailed account to the Justice Minister at the end of May. Because we wondered at this stage, like you said, should GSOC be involved? Should there be an investigation? Should there be a review of everything? Like, we just didn't know. We didn't know what we needed. Or And all that sounded bizarre in my head as well, because I thought that, that shouldn't, none of that should be necessary. It should be as straightforward as going in. All your questions are answered and, and that's it. Because in all of this mess, and it, it start, you start to become suspicious of everything, you know? And I think you just become hard. I, I suppose I didn't have any reason at this point to question the system. I believed in the system. I believed it was there. And I just, I was questioning everything now. I, I just... When the Cavan Guards did offer to set up a meeting in Sligo, the family were exhausted and couldn't face into a meeting like that again. Their second son was starting his junior cert, so they paused for a little while. You know, and it's funny, like a journal, this life has to continue. All the normal stuff has to keep happening when you're still all this crap is in your head that you need answers to. And you feel like you can't sort of move to the next stage until you, until you get all this sorted. The Minister for Justice replied very supportively in July and said he would contact the commissioner. But still they heard nothing. And in the meantime, they contacted a solicitor who focused on finding out what happened. So it was the end of July. We got a letter back from... Charlie Flanagan, just not lovely, just sympathised at all and he was very, very annoyed. He was annoyed more that we felt so let down by the system and he said that won't do. We have to, you know, to make sure you get all the answers to all the questions that he knew we would have given the circumstances. So he said he was going to get on to the commissioner and make sure that that meeting got set up. Now that was the meeting, he thought, with all the guards, which had happened, but he wasn't aware of that, right? Because so much time had passed in between. But I sort of said, I said, you know, let's sit with this as well. I want to know what happens when the commissioner gets the letter from the justice minister. 
And that gets back to Calvin. Will we? We should get a message from them saying, look, we're after getting this letter. We Are you satisfied with what happened on the day? Is there a follow-up or, you know, what do you... But of course, nothing happened. We heard nothing for a very long time. And in between times, we said, let's get, let's get a solicitor. Let's get on the ball with this. Let's bring all this to his attention and see, you know. So we did. We... We um, we went to a solicitor and um, he didn't seem at all shocked by what had happened in Cavan. It's exactly what he would expect. He says, that's what happens. And he said, I really don't think if I organise another meeting, it's going to be much any different. You know, they're just, you know, I don't think the outcome's going to be. What he really wanted to do was get all the information, get all the reports get all the stuff. He says, you know, when you read through that, he said, you're in a better position then to ask the questions. You know what questions you need to ask. You, you know what, you know. So, so he got onto that straight away. Their solicitor began gathering information, but the family still didn't know what had happened in Sligo. In August, he wrote to Sligo Garda Station, who had heard from the family in May and from the cabin station during the summer. They were very aware that we really wanted to follow this up. I think our solicitor sent three letters in total before. And the only reason I think we got anything back from Sligo was because we got back on to Stephen. We'd been back and forth to him a few times saying nothing has happened since the minister, since Charlie Flanagan sent that letter. Nothing has gone on. He was, he was shocked. And sometime in November, when we were still waiting, I sent... I sent Stephen a photograph of Niall and I said, will you please introduce our son to the minister? You know, I said, just, just tell him that unfortunately he will never get the opportunity to meet this young man in his lifetime. But his life mattered and that I cannot understand his frustration because I said, I feel that if he has no control over the over his own area and over like, what hope have we in getting anywhere in all of this so I think about three days after I sent that photograph and that message we got a call from the chief superintendent over the Cavan Monaghan district it took sending that picture to the minister to get a response from the guards and even then it was from Cavan not Sligo but we told him that at this point we still wanted to try and figure out what had happened in Sligo. So he was, he couldn't believe as well that we were waiting that long. So we, we told him that he said he was going to get on to Sligo immediately. I got on to my solicitor as well, explained we'd got this message from this chief superintendent. Our solicitor again sent another letter on that same day. So they were going to be hearing from, we'd hope, the chief superintendent and our solicitor all at the same time. We want the report. A couple of days after that, the report finally arrived. We just couldn't believe how hard, how difficult they were making the whole, how, we just couldn't understand the system. We still don't understand the system. <laughs> I have so many questions about our system now that I, I never ever thought I would have. Had you had interactions with the guards before going into this? No. <laughs> the only time was going in to get our passports signed or stamped. <laughs> that was it. It was only in November that they eventually found out what had happened in Sligo. Yeah, so that's when we finally found out what happened. 
so that was around the beginning of March. Niall had had gone to Ragwick. Um, he on the Monday of this week, he he had stayed behind in Maynooth. He was finishing off assignments and he had a presentation coming up and I know he'd loved it and he was he'd work to finish and do or maybe stuff to hand in and he didn't go with the rest of his friends to Sligo. In fact, I think some of them could have gone from the Sunday to Sunday. He went straight back to me. Anyway, that doesn't really matter. What does matter is that when he got on that train, he was playing catch up and he was drinking quite a bit, according to his friends. You know, they were all, any of the lads that he did go with, he wasn't the only one on the train. There was a few of them at, at that that evening. They were, they were drinking, you know, as, as they do. I mean, this is, you know, we all did stupid things like that. And uh, he had a good bit of drink. And when he arrived in Sligo, we heard that there was, you know, spirits involved. There was a lagging of vodka. And of course, Niall was involved in that. And he was doing whatever he was doing. And he was determined he was going to be as merry as the rest of them. Uh, so, as you can imagine, later on that night, Niall was pretty well on it. When he came in touch with the Gardaí. Now, I think they were called to a particular scene. It was, I think a taxi driver made, uh, something happened anyway, where they were him and another, another person who they call his friend. But this person who we got a name for is, um, I, I don't know who he is. Uh, none of his friends know who he is. He's not known, well, he certainly wouldn't have been known to us, but to them. And I mean, I had a few people researching him like that went to college in Sligo. And nobody seems to know who this person is. And if you know you now, he was not about befriending somebody like a stranger on the street. But anyway, this he was with this this lad. And the guardy stopped him and they said in their report that he was, you know, under the influence and he was highly intoxicated and they had reason to believe that he may have taken something. And so they searched him and they found, they said, a, a little bag of a white powder substance in his pocket, which is, anyway, that's what they, they said they found. And um, they put that into an evidence bag and they said they cautioned him there and then on the side of the road and they they asked him, did he want a solicitor? Or he asked for his solic a solicitor and then they let him go. We've talked about cautions before. They are not something that could be administered on the side of the road. Someone would have to be arrested, a file prepared and a decision taken at a divisional level as to whether or not they were suitable for a caution. Another point here is that the guards say Niall asked for a solicitor. The right of access to a solicitor only kicks in once you've been arrested and are detained by Gardaí. So if they did not intend to arrest him, then they did not have to give him a solicitor, even though he had asked for one. They have not as yet had the inquest into his death, but in September of last year, they did speak to the coroner. He had got the post-mortem results and he said, could, we just, could you just please tell us, was there any evidence of drugs in his system? And he said, no, not, nothing. Alcohol, yes, but not drugs. And that was a huge thing to us because we didn't, because all these seeds had been planted. We thought, geez, you know, had he been, but then, you know, with his friends telling us that we were starting to not believe them. We were believing the guards. We were thinking, well, you know, they they know they should. His friends are just covering up and, you know, they're covering up for themselves. Or, you know, um, 
why they, they didn't take him in at that point and question him with a solicitor. I, I, I don't understand that at all. And I suppose I, we haven't had the opportunity to speak with any of those guards to find out what their thinking was on, on any of that. But they, so that they let him go and they said that they, they, they watched him walk towards a particular area and go inside a house. And I think they kind of cautioned him not, you know, to go and sober up or I don't know. But later on in that, that same night, they were called back, called to another area. The same guards, where Niall had been refused, he obviously didn't go back to the house and lie down and sleep or do anything like that. <laughs> he continued to do whatever he was doing or meet up with the friends or whatever. So he, he was refused admittance to um, a nightclub. So the guards had been called, or I don't know whether they were called or whether he, they just happened to be on the scene. And they said they observed Nile trying to cross the barrier into which would have been a very busy Garvog River. Now, I don't know whether they arrested him because they saw him going to do this or because, or did he run from them and try to do this? I, I, I don't know. But I mean, it was, a, anyway, they said they arrested him for his own safety. That's what was on the report. So they, they took him not to Sligo Garda Station, but to one about 20-25 minutes away and he was detained there and they said that they were leaving him there to sober up but they let him go at five now I don't think at five o'clock now I was in any way sober and I mean that was evidenced in his signature of the the yeah the charge sheet I mean it did not look like it looked anyway it wasn't his signature he certainly wasn't very you know sober signing it but they let him go at that time they brought him back to where he was staying at that time and I, I don't know why again more questions arise here he'd asked for a solicitor earlier in the evening but then when he was detained there was no solicitor should you charge young People, when they're under, under the influence of drink, when they have no clue, they have not a notion what they're being charged for, what they're being arrested for. He couldn't possibly have known. And he didn't because the very next day, he, he had his charge sheet and had no clue. He hadn't a notion, according to his friends, he didn't know what he was supposed to have done. So he kept saying, I have to go back, I have to go, I have to go to the guard station, I have to find this out, I have to, I have to figure out what I did. So he went back to the station, but he went to Sligo because he didn't know he was he didn't know where he'd been brought but he went back to psycho station with one of his wonderful friends that, that, that went with him and um they have no record of him going there they just know that at the time that we mentioned the um pulse system some you know had been entered or somebody had locked for information from that in around that time so he said that must have been when nile came back to the station to ask questions and they mentioned a female guard and that his friend said it was a it was a female guard now he didn't go anywhere near that he stood back and let you know so he, he couldn't tell us that and he didn't know what was said or not said but I was I suppose I just I just felt that that was an, a massive missed opportunity you know for any young person if they're willing to go back and find out what happened that was the time to sit them down and explain look at this is what all this means. Because at no point during any of this do I think anything was explained to Niall. He hadn't a clue. You know, like even I know she wasn't present the night before, no, she wasn't there during the arrest, but even stuff like, okay, 
this is your first offence, the judge would be lenient on your first offence. You know, like, do you have a solicitor? Do you want me to give you the name of a solicitor? It'd be good for you to talk to the solicitor. Here's what happens when you go, have you been to court? Don't, it's nothing like what you've seen on the television, which is, I can imagine what he thought it would be like. This is what, this is the procedure. Here's a few leaflets or something. Here's some information for you now. You need to read through that. And if you have any questions, ring back here. You know, instead, he was just, he was, he was just let go and um, just left with his own thoughts, which I can't imagine were great. The ICCL are clear that the obligation on Gardaí is to be satisfied that the person understands the information. Well, I think um, it's clear from from the um, existing regulations and, and the law that applies that where somebody is um, intoxicated or may have trouble understanding the information that's given to them, that the, the Gardaí have a, a heightened duty of care to to take to take um, greater steps to ensure that they do understand what is being said to them, um, and that may mean that if it's the case of someone who's who's inebriated or intoxicated, it may be that they they have to return, you know, and and give that information again um, at, on different occasions uh, at different periods to ensure that until they are sure that the information has been understood. It may be that they need somebody else to assist with giving the information. Um, someone who might uh, who might be uh, clearer or might be might be trusted by by the person. So there are I, I think I think it's clear um, that there there is a heightened duty to ensure that people um, understand the information that's been given to them if they are in in that that kind of an intoxicated state or if they might might have other reasons um, not to be uh, in a position to understand the information that's given to them. They detained him for his own safety and yet no doctor was called. When you are detained in a Garda station, there will always be one officer in the station allocated the role of member in charge. The function of the member in charge is to ensure that your rights are observed. So when you arrive, they are to independently assess that you should be detained. They inform you of your rights. They maintain the custody record, which is a log of everything that happens. They check on you in the cell. They contact lawyers, parents, doctors, interpreters as needed. This role and their duties were set out in regulations in 1987, and there have only been small amendments since, which is in stark contrast to what we've learned about vulnerabilities and duties of care in that time frame. Since the Mars Tribunal, there have been criticisms that the role of the member in charge is not taken seriously enough. Dr. Roxana Dagani of Cardiff University talked to us about what's done in this space in England and Wales. As soon as someone is arrested, they are kind of under the care of the arresting officer. Then when they're detained, so if they're taken to police custody and detained, they are at that point, once they're kind of booked in, as it's called, um, they are under the care of the staff in that custody suite. So that includes Custody officers here, police sergeants, so that's the second rank uh, for police officers in England, Wales and Northern Ireland, and of, of the custody detention staff. So usually within custody suites, depends on the size, but there will be um, a number of custody detention staff who are sometimes civilians, sometimes privately contracted through, for example, G4S um, and the, the custody officer. But... When someone is then processed uh, for detention, 
there's a risk assessment that's carried out. And um, now that risk assessment stems back from the uh, 2006 safer detention. So quite frequently, custody so officers will refer to it as safer detention. Um, that was then updated in 2012, um, and it, it states that it has a strategic focus which promotes the safe and uh, decent delivery of custody. Now, safe detention was then updated, um, and it now forms part of the approved professional practice as part of the College of Policing Resources on Standards, such so a standard on detention and custody, and in particular, risk assessment. So there's a risk assessment that's conducted upon someone being booked in and there can be information provided by, for example, the the arresting officer or officers. But usually there's a range of questions, um, not necessarily standardised across the 43 forces in England and Wales, uh, but largely following a very similar pattern, which will ask people about how they're feeling, um, whether they have any mental health problems, whether they've been consuming drugs or alcohol. Obviously, the questions that are asked, there's you know a reliance on the individual being detained to answer those truthfully, and for various reasons, people might not always answer those truthfully. And um, it can be quite you know it's an environment where at different times of the day there can be other people milling around, other police officers, solicitors, and legal representatives. Once that risk assessment is complete, the risk level will be assigned and treated accordingly. Within England and Wales um, and in Northern Ireland, as far as I'm aware, in Northern Ireland, um, there will be healthcare practitioners in the police custody suite. Sometimes there are also forensic medical examiners, um, kind of police surgeons or police doctors, as they call them. And there may also be drug and alcohol workers and um, approved mental health practitioners. So certainly the individual can be referred on to the healthcare um, professional healthcare practitioner. Um, for an assessment. There will also be various things. So there are um, different levels that an individual can be kind of detained at so that they're placed at different levels that they can, for example, check what they call the PNC, the Police National Computer, for information that's previously been recorded about that individual or the PND, which is the Police National Database. So they can check that to see what, what information has, you know, historic information has been recorded but that would obviously depend on someone having been detained before. This shapes their care package, determining how frequently they are checked, whether they are observed by CCTV, whether they need medical treatment and so on. There's also a a post-release assessment that's carried out, which again is kind of like, how are you feeling? I mean, sometimes even the questions are, you know, do you have thoughts of killing yourself? I mean, and obviously that can be quite, I think, triggering for some people. Um, it's very brief, but there is informa- there's kind of additional information provided to the individual. Sometimes they're given a sheet, you know, here are some numbers to contact. I don't think that's necessarily very helpful. It appears risk assessments are being rolled out in Ireland. A basic one was conducted for Niall and Cavan, but the family have seen no such assessment for Sligo. And where it was done, the family feel it was very pro forma, a long list of ticking no to problems, no detail provided on any of the questions, except to indicate that he had been drinking. And even if problems have been identified, Ireland does not have the same resources to hand as exist in England and Wales to respond to any care issues that arise. If a doctor is required in Ireland, someone will be on a list, phoned and asked to attend the station. 
We don't have medics or mental health staff on site in Garda stations, which is a significant difference between the UK and Ireland. And we certainly do not have post-release risk assessment. Roxana was clear that the UK system is certainly not foolproof, but it raises real questions about how modern and professional the Garda system is for fulfilling its duty of care towards detainees. This is a topic we'll come back to on the podcast, particularly in terms of mental health. It was nothing major what he'd done, but he wouldn't have known that. He would have felt, he would have been so annoyed at himself. I know he would have been so ashamed, so, so cross with himself. And then just not knowing where to turn. Like, who do you turn to? You know, who do you get this, who do you get advice from? Who, like he, one of his good, like when he, back in college that week, his friend said he was very distant. He was quiet. Um, he had told them all that he didn't want to go out. He was doing nothing. He was going nowhere. He wasn't drinking anymore until he got this whole psycho thing sorted. Now, I don't know whether I mentioned he was due to appear in court on the 28th of March for this. One of his good friends, who's actually studying law in Maynooth, she advised him to get a solicitor, to, to talk to a solicitor, which he did do, in fairness. Now, he would have just spoken over the phone. I don't think he had any lengthy conversation. The That solicitor probably was used to maybe stuff like this happening in Sligo. He said, look, I will meet you on that day. Um, and he sort of, I think, said, don't be worrying about it. You'll be fined and you'll be cautioned and that'll be it. But I listening to his friends and, and how he was, like he was just very, and I was quiet, he, he could be quite quiet. And when he got nervous, especially before a match, he would be very quiet in himself. He wouldn't be able to, to look at him. He just wouldn't want to talk to anybody. And, and I know in his nervous state, he would have gone like that and he wouldn't nearly, he'd have closed people. That, that just was the way he was. The two incidents were clearly connected. We're convinced that what happened in Sligo is what led to what happened in Cavan because of how his head must have been. You know, like he'd said he didn't want to be going out. He really didn't want to go out on that night either. He told this to some of his friends he was, and he didn't know how he was going to get around it because he really, he didn't want to let his friend down either. He, you know, he wanted to be there and meet up with all his friends, yet he knew, you know, I still have to sort this other stuff out. And then myself knowing, knowing how his head was then, he probably didn't want to be here either. He didn't want to be, it was easier for him to not be here. To be out with his friends and but on that night some of his friends said that, that, that he mentioned what happened in Sligo and they were sort of saying I don't worry about it it'll be okay it's going to work out and he was like no you don't understand you aren't listening to me I could get a criminal record for this I don't know this could be bad it might mean that I won't be able to leave the country like God help him he just had his poor head tortured and it was that was obvious from what they had said on that night. Some of them that he just happened to, and he said it to a good few of them, I think. The prospect of court, and then compounded by a second arrest, at 20 years of age, an intensely responsible young man. Part of Nal's family's concern is that our criminal justice system doesn't seem to acknowledge that development of the mind continues beyond the day you turn 18. We discussed this in a previous episode with Professor Ursula Kilkelly that until you are fully developed, our processing and decision making is different, less mature. There's such a, a long process there that needs to be supported, and I don't think our system gets that. I don't think there's an appreciation for that that transition that's so important that we should be there to help them through. And you know, fair enough, 
the system, the state wants to take us out of it, then who is there in our place? Who is there to support them through it? And this is where the guarded duty of care comes in. If they have arrested you, they have a duty to make sure you understand your rights and the process, to ensure you access medical care as needed, to access a lawyer if desired. In Niall's case, though, Joanna and her family feel there was just a succession of missed opportunities. Opportunities that might have helped Niall to process what was happening differently. It can be easy to dismiss an arrest as not that big a deal, but for someone who has never been in trouble, who had a career and a sporting life ahead of him, who was so very responsible, that must have been an incredibly daunting thing. And then there is how the family retreated afterwards and the struggle to access information. There's been no Garda investigation into this case. Under the Garda Shikona Act, Section 102, the Garda Commissioner must refer all cases to GSOC to investigate any matter that appears to indicate that the conduct of a member of the Garda Shikona may have resulted in the death or serious harm to a person. The family have chosen not to make a complaint. It was mentioned to us at some stage that we could bring this to GSOC. Um, I think after our meetings with um, Inca, I, I, I don't know, I, I honestly don't think we trusted GSOC, I don't know. Do you know, I think as well, maybe we might have discussed this with the solicitor and he didn't see, he didn't see any point in going down that road either, which is, is ridiculous really. The family don't believe that any particular individual guard is at fault for this. The very first phone call that we had with the, the, the guards in, in Cavan, when John Foney said, this is not about trying to apportion blame to, to anybody. We're, we're not doing that. We're not about that. We know nobody made Niall do what he did. I mean, we just, we absolutely know that. We know that. But we just needed to know what, what was the events running up to that because it was just so bizarre to think our son did this? Why? There has to be a reason why. Yeah, yeah look, at, he deserved a bit. He deserved more. I feel he was, his, he was failed completely by the system. This is about acknowledging how scary arrest can be, how vulnerable someone can be in that moment, and why it is so important that we think holistically and fulsomely about what the guarded duty of care is and how it needs to be fulfilled. Because honestly, the minor offence that they kept labelling it as could turn into like a major tragedy very quickly. You know, the flip of a coin, it can, it can go from minor to major. And we know that we're living that now. And like for his minor offence, we're now living the life sentence. You know, we're going to suffer for the rest of our lives for that, that, that just blip. As to why they're doing the podcast. I really, I really feel that it's important that our story is told. In all of this, I, I felt that there's just so many wrongs in the system. And if in any way this can help anybody else or help the system to realise that there's, that there's things that need to change, there's support systems that need to be put in place, there's a conversation that needs to be had. If, if that does any of that, Niall has two younger brothers and he's 22 younger cousins. If this helps them in any way or any of those, there's so many young people that this could help and so many other parents that are going to be in a similar situation to us that if this helps any of those, then 
then I think it's 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 really important to parents out there that that listen to our story. I say please talk to your 18-year-old. It's a wonderful milestone in their life, but just remind them of what it means and that if they ever end up getting into trouble, which they might, which you hope they don't, but they might, just to let them know that they can make that phone call. Just encourage them to ring you. Tell them you don't mind what it is. It, it honestly doesn't matter. You're going to be there for them because you love them more than anybody or anything in the world. I think it's very easy to think that if someone has been arrested, they shouldn't be mollycoddled, they're not in the hospital, etc. But the vast majority of people who are arrested have issues with substance abuse, have mental health concerns, live in deprived circumstances. The state has obligations to care for these people while they're in custody. Think of how you would want your loved ones treated if they were detained. Think of the impact that an arrest has on someone like Niall. It's insufficient to say that I'm grateful to Joanna and her family. I hope we've done justice to their story. I hope we've made you think about how people should be treated in detention. I hope we've made you think about why greater standards, facilities and safeguards are needed. Thank you to Darren and Roxana for helping us put all that in context. If you've been affected by the talk of suicide in this episode, please know that support is available for those who are struggling and for their family members through groups like Aware, Pieta House and The Samaritans. As ever, thanks to Brian and Tony, my producers, and thank you to you, the listeners, for your continued support. If you don't already, please go to patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack and donate the price of a cup of coffee a month to keep this going.